Welcome to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch, and this is a podcast of conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Tim Kelsey. He's the new CEO of PKS Holdings, who are pioneering in data analytics in Australia and around the world. He was previously at HIMSS as the Senior VP of International Analytics, and of course, he was the previous CEO of the Australian Digital Health Agency from 2016 to 2020. In England, Tim was also the NHS National Director for Patients and Information from 2012 to 2015. Tim was also previously National Information Director for Health and Care in England and the Chair of the National Information Board. Before that, the British government's first Executive Director of Transparency and Open Data. In 2018, Tim founded and was the inaugural chair of the Global Digital Health Partnership, a unique international collaboration which brings together 30 governments and the World Health Organization. He also has a long history within healthcare and the digital space, which we look forward to getting into in our discussion today. Tim Kelsey, how are you? Yeah, good. Thanks, Pete. Thanks. Excellent. Look, really appreciate you making the time to get your perspective on things and learn a bit more about you. So thank you very much. Let's get stuck into it. Firstly, yourself, Tim, what's the Tim Kelsey story? Well, uh, yeah, gosh, well, just truncated. So I, I actually started off as a journalist. I was a um, foreign correspondent in the Middle East, covered the first Gulf War that back in 1990 and came back to England, ended up being a news editor of the Sunday Times. And it was whilst I was there that I began to realise what was happening in our health service. As everybody will realise, you know, the National Health Service in England is as close to a religion as we, as the English have got. And I was astonished. I was an investigative journalist, but actually at this point I was news editor of the paper. But in came a story from my mother, actually, who was a GP in the southwest of England, who was very, very upset, floods of tears, rang me on a Friday night, saying that she'd come to the conclusion that a local doctor, the hospital in Exeter in Devon in southwest England, was, she believed, actually killing his patients. And she was a breast cancer specialist in the local region, and she'd referred a number of people to him. And he simply hadn't seen them for a follow-up referral. And three of those women had actually subsequently died without a referral or had their uh, cancer was inoperable by the time they got to one. So uh, in the end, she rang me because she wasn't sure what to do. And she decided that she was going to report him to the regulator. So he was reported to the General Medical Council. They did an investigation. And what they concluded was that at least 11 women had had their lives foreshortened as a result of his negligence and possibly as many as 50. Now, he turned out to be an alcoholic radiographer who, radiologist, sorry, who had quite literally been stuffing the x-rays from referring GPs down the back of his radiator in his office, and he had not seen a single patient, it turned out, for months. Now, what struck me most, quite apart from the terrible tragedy for the families of those involved, and indeed for my own family, my mother, there's nothing so awful in a way as being a whistleblower. It's unrewarded. It's a great personal sacrifice to often, and certainly for my mother it was as well. But beyond the personal tragedy for her and for the patients, uh, the families of the patients who had died, what came at me as a real revelation was the complete absence of any awareness on the part of the hospital that this guy hadn't seen any patients. And I, I couldn't believe it. I just felt this was impossible, surely like an airline or like a nuclear power plant, both safety critical industries, you know, the NHS would know precisely what was going on down to the location of the last widget in the supply chain, and certainly know when a consultant was seeing a patient or not. But actually, they had no idea. And when I dug into it, I realized not only did they not know whether or not doctors were seeing patients, they didn't know anything about the quality of the service that was being provided, whether they were actually frankly, killing more people than they should have been, whether they were avoidable deaths 
in hospital. And people may know, but back in 1850, it was Florence Nightingale who first proposed that the best measure of a, the quality of a hospital was, in fact, the number of, of deaths that were avoidably caused in that hospital by literally just walking into one hospital as opposed to another. How much more likely were you to die just because you were in that hospital? And she felt that, that death, mortality, was the most important indicator of quality in a hospital. Um, I, you know, the, the lower the lower level of avoidable mortality that was recorded, and she developed a method for doing that. The hospital, in this case, definitely had no idea of how it could be monitoring its own quality and effectiveness. So I looked into this, and I discovered in the end that there was a real absence. And I, in the end, cutting a long story short, I left the Sunday Times and set up a company called Dr. Foster, which was intended really to be a vehicle for a campaign to promote transparency in healthcare so that we could all know as patients and consumers of health services, just frankly, how good was our local hospital? And so we collated a whole bunch of data. We worked with some very, very clever uh, epidemiologists and statisticians at Imperial College in London who had designed methodologies for kind of capturing those insights from administrative data. And we were able to publish in 2001, the first Good Hospital Guide actually anywhere in the world, it turned out, which basically offered the public, published by the Sunday Times, offered the public a view of the quality of all their own local hospitals. And that's, so Dr. Foss then continued after that. I was there for about 10 years. It turned out to be one of the very early kind of initiatives. There were, there were others at the time as well that was promoting this new concept of transparency of quality, using data, trying to help health services get over this problem of, as the hospital next to of literally flying blind and potentially putting their patients at risk in doing so. So that's how I started off. And then I eventually did Dr. Foster left, joined the public sector to work for the British Prime Minister and the Cabinet Office on a much broader sort of strategy around data as a whole across the public service. And then just hopping through it, I eventually ended up back in the NHS, leading the work there on digital and data. And then finally came to, most recently came to Australia, where I initially worked for Telstra Health. So very familiar with the very creative, innovative world of kind of software innovation in, uh, in Australia, in health. And then I was recruited to be the inaugural CEO of the Australian Digital Health Agency, which is a tremendous privilege. I'm sure we'll talk about in our health record as we go through it. Finished there in January this year and uh, went to join a global not-for-profit called HIMSS, which has for many years now promoted the concept of digital maturity for countries. So helping countries work out where their capabilities and capacities are. And that's what I've been doing for the last year or so, supporting countries right around the world, France, Germany, Australia, Hong Kong, with thinking differently about how they can approach the digital opportunity. And obviously that driven very substantially by all the acceleration that's taken place during the COVID pandemic. Yeah, and I was going to say, you've obviously seen a lot what's happened globally in the role at HIMSS in relation to digital health and the landscape there globally. What's your perspective on on digital health from a global perspective, particularly in response to COVID? Well, look, it's almost becoming a cliche now to say this, but clearly everything has changed. It's not just a burning platform, it's a generational moment. We've just seen health grip the opportunity of digital enablers in a way that other industries, the financial services sector, the aviation sector gripped 10, 12 years ago. And, you know, it couldn't have come soon enough. We can talk about why it's been so slow, relatively speaking, healthcare, but what COVID's done is expose the inadequacy in many cases of national strategies to promote remote access to care services and a whole range of other digital opportunities. 
whilst also very clearly articulating the benefits of those kinds of services being available. So whether that's secure messaging or broader interoperability, or whether it's things like My Health Record, the ability for a person to have access to their own health information 24-7 online, these are now no longer arguments. They are very clearly in the minds of all the policymakers that I have regular contact with in countries around the world. And really now the challenge is purely one of implementation uh, you know, the cultural challenge in some cases. But even that's been very significantly reduced and changed by, you know, clinical awareness, the broader population's commitment to dealing with this disease, a, a new kind of altruism where we, we, we shouldn't underestimate this. We've seen people withdraw from society voluntarily to keep others safe. And this is a really new phenomenon, I think, in, in our species, if I can be that. We haven't really seen that before, but we're now, it's almost becoming part of our normal approach. Nobody would, well, many people would not think twice now about having the appearance of a cold and then withdrawing from the community for two weeks to make sure it wasn't COVID. This is a different, Mm. new, much more active engagement in health and well-being, which digital can support. So I don't think we can properly articulate just how important this pandemic has been. But what we can see is that everything has been changed by it. Totally interesting perspective. And because you get to see and have conversations with policymakers globally, for us Aussies, how do we compare to the rest of the world? Like, what are we good at in terms of digital health and where can we improve? On so many levels, Australia is field leading, you know, from, you know, translational research, cochlear and other sorts of, you know, that side of technology innovation. I mean, Australia has been field leading in devices and medical applications for generations, for decades. But I think what's, there are some, however, for me, having had the privilege of serving in a similar position in both the English and the Australian sort of government running the digital strategies for both, I think there are some very interesting comparisons. Australia unquestionably has led the way in terms of consumer empowerment with access to digital tools. You know, my health record was controversial at the time it went to opt out. And I'm sure for many still remains a controversial initiative although you don't read about it quite so much in the newspapers today. And, and you know, we shouldn't forget that roughly about 90% of the population has a My Health record. And the last time I looked, about half of those are being actively now used in clinical and personal practice, which is quite an unprecedented situation for a country of Australia's size. There are other countries that have personal health record infrastructures like this, but they tend to be much smaller, so Estonia or the Nordic countries, for example, England has a summary care record infrastructure, which again provides access to a person's information 24-7 wherever they are, but they themselves cannot access that information, only their care professionals. So putting that data in the hands of the consumer, as Australia has done, is a, is a really important, I think very far-sighted policy initiative. And more important even than that is the ability that people have to decide who else sees that information. So as you know, the law in this country very clearly states that an individual can decide, even if they choose to, that their own doctor isn't allowed to have access to Miles' record, or they can provide it to whomever they like. So that personal element of control, legislation in this country, sets a standard which many other countries are now looking at emulating as they, in the midst of this pandemic, begin to look at ways in which they can also create safe online accounts for people to manage their healthcare with. And it's going to be really interesting to see how Australia, you know, with that in, in place, is going to be so much better able to handle things like the vaccine passport question than other countries will be because people can simply take their My Health record and show that to whomever is asking about the credibility of the vaccination process. So I'd say in terms of consumer empowerment, 
or citizen empowerment, Australia is, is certainly in, in many respects field leading. I think the challenge for Australia is the broader challenge of interoperability, the adoption of standards across the country that will allow key items, that, well, comprehensive clinical information to flow between providers, obviously, where there's appropriate authority and with, with appropriate security and so on. That still remains a real challenge. And the simple facts are that, you know, at the moment, an individual's patient record is kind of locked in one place, not really accessible in another. And solving that problem, I think, is the most current urgent priority for Australian healthcare. I'm very glad to see that the federal government and all the states and territories are very much prioritising that sort of set of standards as we speak. In other countries, there has been more success, and you can see the benefits of interoperability really driving improvements in outcome and experience for patients, and indeed greater efficiency for the clinicians who serve them as well. So I think, I think we know where the priorities are in Australia, and I think that we've already seen real energy from the health policy leadership to really accelerate the pace of adoption. So I'm optimistic that Australia will manage some of these issues you know, in the relatively short term. Mm, definitely hear you in relation to interoperability. And so from where you stand now, is that the key priority for digital health when it comes to decisions around for governments and health systems? Yeah, that's a really good question. Well, in a way, yes, but there's a different lens I probably would cast on this. So if you look around the world, and let's take retail, for example. So your average grocer would be spending somewhere in the order of 7 to 8% of their turnover on technology. So, you know, we are used in grocery stores to full-on barcoding at every point of contact. We're now acting as the cashiers, uh, saving the grocery chains with vast amounts of money and making the whole experience much more efficient for us. So it's a trade-off we're very happy with, but we're doing most of the clerical work now for the retailers of most descriptions. And that's an incredible shift of cost towards the consumer in a way that could only be facilitated by digital enablers. In healthcare, the story's been very different. So generally speaking, countries, and there's no absolutely hard and fast uh, way of looking at this, but generally speaking, countries are estimated to be spending somewhere between 2 and 4% of the turnover of the spend on their overall health budget on technology. So considerably less than the larger retailers are spending, uh, for, as an example, or indeed the airlines. And this has come as a real revelation now to um, governments in, in some countries. So in light of COVID and also an awareness that they really need to up the ante on just accelerating digital adoption in their health services, Germany has put, for example, a very significant new financial incentive uh, on the table for German providers to access 4.3 billion euro to accelerate their digital adoption. And so too as France, other countries are now looking at significantly increasing the level of investment in digital to, to force the pace of adoption, but also to raise that percentage up from 2% perhaps to nearer 4 or beyond, which would be roughly what people would estimate if you're a health economist would be the right level of rule of thumb for you to be spending on a technology service. Now, Australia, in some respects, has, you know, and again, there's no really accurate way of putting a figure to it, but the level of spending in Australia is variable between states, territories in their commitments to promoting digital adoption. And I think one of the things that, federal, that all the governments of Australia will probably need to reflect on is not just the importance of promoting common standards for digital and data to be implemented, but also on the cost of those of implementing those standards. And ultimately, kind of stepping back and going, actually, this is an area we're going to have to invest in, in a way that probably hasn't been invested in before. So I think that's going to be the big discussion for Australia. It's going to be, as with many other countries, is, is, there, a, is there a recognition 
that actually there, there needs to be further investment in sort of the digital infrastructure to enable the benefits to flow. And how quickly should that be made? And to some extent, I, obviously, I'm not privy to the internal thinking of the German government or whatever, but I'm guessing that, you know, when you look as a government at the extraordinary deficits that COVID has already yeah. piled up, I mean, frankly, a few extra billion on just getting it right in healthcare doesn't feel like an enormous sacrifice. So I kind of hope that countries with appropriate, you know, um, what's the word, policing will recognize the need for additional investment. Yeah, I was going to say, and in Australia as well, so fascinated with being in a surplus up until COVID. And now this has obviously broken that and moved that, at least for our generation and others, that's not just not possible. So, you know, we're in this point in time where potentially, you know, this is the best time for us to be doubling down in terms of investment for healthcare and health technology. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. Um and then so thinking at a more local level or specifically within the industry, so for health technology vendors, if you're in their shoes right now and looking at creating solutions, what should be particular focus and priority from a health tech vendor's perspective? Well, as you mentioned at the beginning, I've just recently joined a ASX-listed business called Pacific Knowledge Systems or PKS Holdings as it's listed on the exchange, which is a business that has pioneered in a range of ways, you know, data analytics in health service, particularly looking at the quality of data that's being used in hospitals and, and elsewhere, and not just in Australia, but in other countries as well. So I'm very focused on this question now as a vendor myself. Um, mm. And I actually think there's, an, you know, there has been and remains an extraordinary opportunity, which many Australian companies have been brilliantly exploiting over the, over the last few years to, I think, rethink the whole um, approach that that new innovations in digital technology and things like the fire standard and a range of other changes make possible for more agile responses to pain points in the health system. Even the larger EMR providers are now absolutely prioritizing a much more sort of flexible and agile response to the needs of their clients. And I think this puts you know smaller, leaner, more innovative businesses in a, in a really interesting and great position, quite honestly. And we've seen that during COVID in many countries, and not least Australia, there's been Governments have been much more willing in a way to take a risk on the smaller business, which has got the more innovative solution to sort of solve the problem. The other thing I've noticed is that there's been not just a, a much more active collaboration with the technology sector during COVID in terms of trying to work out, for example, you know, how virtual care services can be most quickly provided to different parts of the community. And often it is going to be the smaller company that's able to fill that gap, as we've seen. But we've also seen, I think, a real change in the relationship between the the sort of governmental commissioner of a health service or the state commissioner of health services and the pharmaceutical industry. So I think though, you know, historically there's been a bit of a standoff there, a bit of distrust that's partly a response, a reflection of the fact that the pharmaceutical industry has been the biggest cost burden, as it were, to the health service. And so in that negotiation, inevitably, you know, perfectly normally there, there's an element of distrust that, that occurs. But what we've seen during COVID and the reaction to development of the vaccines and this incredibly close collaboration between regulators and the pharma industry and government is, I think, a change, a really big change, where I think we can expect a future that will embrace both technology for medicines innovation as well as for digital innovation, being much more intense and positive collaboration with public and private sector clients. So I think if I, as a vendor myself, I'm trying to think about where I can support that new collaboration most effectively and with what distinctive offer can that be best made? And I think that pretty much everything is up for grabs, whether that's relating to you know, improvements in the safety and experience for the patient who's being treated remotely, right through to genuine predictive analytics that is going to help a system forecast 
when a person really needs attention in a physical institution as opposed to at home. So I think it's an enormous opportunity. And I think the vendor community of Australia, which has already demonstrated such a resilience and innovation during this crisis, is extremely well placed to make the most of it. That's fascinating insights and really thought-provoking as well. So there's some good things to think about from a vendor's perspective. And we'll get to the point around PKS in a minute too. But just to go back on the My Health Record for a moment, a couple of minutes ago, you talked about the potential that it opens up in Australia when it comes to vaccine passports and everything around COVID. And so My Health Record, that was implemented in your time in the ADHA. In your view on the My Health Record, beyond vaccines and everything, like what's the importance of My Health Record moving forward and how can it be best utilised in this new world? Yeah, so look, I think my health record is an incredibly important part of the Australian health service moving forward. And it's already beginning, as I said, to just recede into business as usual. It's sort of running along in the background. During the course of the campaign to make sure people are aware of their rights to opt out, and of course they still exist if people do want to opt out of my health record or shut it down, there were a whole range, I think, of narratives around my health record which related to sort of general practice and the way in which you, know, you can see your GP and, the, uh, and there are various reports that a GP can upload that will help you. But that, for me, and that's a very important part, of course, of the offer that my health record makes people. But I think the more important offer in a way, at least as important, is the fact that today 99% of community pharmacies are connected to my health record. And for those who have one uh, and wish this to happen, automatically their dispensed medicines information gets uploaded into the miles record. So every time you go to a pharmacist, you're given your prescription. The moment that prescription is dispensed, that information is uploaded into miles record. And that is the only place currently that there is comprehensive data available on a person's dispensed medicines for both the clinician who's looking after them and for the person themselves. And we've already seen, you know, instances in which people's lives genuinely have been protected because they haven't taken the wrong pills or because the wrong pills haven't been dispensed to them because a pharmacist has been able to make a reconciliation at point of dispense and go, hang on, this doesn't look like the right prescription for you. And a prescription errors or medication misadventure accounts for, I think it's 250,000 different uh, moments of avoidable admission to hospital each year. So these are quite common hmm. occurrences which something like my, which my health record is helping reduce. So there's, there's access to medicines, access to pathology, access to radiology, all these diagnostic tests also in the my health record. And as I said too, my health record is also a point of access to the immunization register, which is where the vaccine, COVID vaccines will be reported. So already today, you can take your uh, my health record to the local school as proof of your child's immunization history, something that people don't necessarily realize is already in the my health record. And my health record has a range of other benefits as well. So, so I think, you know, as time goes by, more and more people will become used to just simply those being taken for granted, quite rightly, not nothing particularly exciting about them. And actually, to be honest with you, it's hard to imagine, you know, even just a year or so, 18 months after the my health record went to opt out, an Australian health service without such a scheme. And I think people will start to wonder how on earth any health service could be without a scheme that allows you to see your own health information, at least in summary form, on your mobile whenever you want and key things like what were the last medicines i was prescribed and dispensed by the pharmacist you know those kinds of basic items it provides an important foundation i think for the future of australia yeah it will be good to see how that's best utilized into 2021 and beyond as the health system evolves so yeah that'll be one to watch and so looking forward tim so you're in the new role at pks tell us a bit more about how that all came to be yeah, well, I was really enjoying the work at Hims. It's a fantastic, very visionary organisation. A great privilege to be recruited by them to that role. 
But I was approached to uh, consider this role as a PKS. And I mentioned earlier the work I did in setting up Dr. Foster 20 years ago now. And PKS, in a way, has been looking at how you can use the data that runs through the veins of hospitals all over the world, and particularly and in Australia, to help support them in a range of different ways. And when I saw what PKS had been doing, I was frankly bowled away by it. I was, in, I was very excited. And in the end, I decided this was what I had to do. Um, so uh, more on that to come. I've, I've only literally just started. So we won't go into at the moment my plans for PKS. But one of the reasons I took the role was because I do think that there's an enormously important opportunity. And we talked about interoperability a little bit earlier, but more than interoperability for vendors or you know firms like PKS to start really developing the next generation of tools that will help healthcare providers make sense of the integrated journey of a patient. So linking data across hospitals and primary care and in community services in a way that can help maximize the quality of the outcome for a patient and maximize the value to the system of the way that patient encounter occurs. And to be honest with you, despite all the great discussion that's been had for the last decade or more in relation to quality and value in healthcare, we still don't really have those tools. So I think there's a very important opportunity to, to really get to the next stage with that and obviously look at machine learning and AI as part of the new rubric that will help us build those insights, but go beyond just creating a set of reports and start looking at those reports directly informing clinical decision support and directly influencing behavior on the front line of care delivery. So I think we're heading to a period where we really are going to start seeing some evidence-based predictive analytics really supporting clinical practice. And that's, I think, one of the key objectives I've got with this new role and for PKS. But alongside that, there's another, I think, really important opportunity which the future holds and which must be gripped. And again, I think PKS can play a role here, but certainly not you know, on its own, as it were. And that, and that is to properly recognize the importance of the new technologies of molecular diagnostics, so whether that's genomics or related disciplines. We haven't yet seen those diagnostics come into mainstream clinical practice, but we will. Two to three years from now, the same kind of very bespoke, customized medical insights that are supporting cancer patients with lung cancer for a moment in some places and so on are going to become much more available to all of us when it's appropriate in just mainstream clinical encounter. But that can only happen when, A, we have a fully informed digital health service that is able to communicate these very complex digital sequences. I, I, clearly, you can't communicate a genome on a bit of paper or via a fax machine. So we're going to need to have that digital interoperability I talked about just to enable uh, genomics just to begin. But we also need the, this next generation of analytic services to be able to power the kind of the insights we can glean from comparing a person's genomic variants with the experience of the rest of the population and deduce what may be the best therapy for, for them. So this whole concept of precision medicine can only, I think, be delivered with a, with a digital infrastructure and a, more, a much more advanced data analytics. And I think that's where I sense many of the businesses in Australia who are in this space of focus. Certainly that's where PKS will hope to make a contribution. But I think that's the future. That's the opportunity we all have. Mm. That's fascinating. It's kind of the whole crawl, walk, run type thing. We're definitely in this slow crawl at the moment, but there's the vision for how we'll be Usain bolting it later, uh, eventually into the future. Yeah. Um, the last one I had for you, I think you just spoke to most of it then, but looking into the future and the opportunities and challenges around digital health, Tim, do you have any perspective around that? 
I think a bit like you, I think that's a really good comment, crawl, walk, run. I think we're more than crawling now, but we're not quite running yet. And we need to be very careful about the pace of the change. So I think we need to be patient because it's not going to happen overnight. And we need to be very mindful of overclaiming and underdelivering, if I can put it like that. For te technology is just an enabler. It's not going to solve any problems on its own. What needs to lead it is the clinical demand and the consumer demand, actually, for doing things differently, more conveniently, more reliably, and more securely. Right? So I think getting that balance right between developing new tools to help evolve and modernize the health and well-being services we, we receive is going to be a complex, iterative kind of co-production, if I can use that jargon. And we need to learn the lessons of the past where, in some cases, the technology agenda was pushed too hard on often unwilling or unsupportive clinical communities, and the, the long-term result was failure and disappointment, and even now fatigue with the whole idea of digital as a, as a concept. So that's, I think, really important. Patience, keeping the momentum going, but not sacrificing the trust of the community or the commitment of the, of the clinical professionals who serve them is going to be really important in the future. But that shouldn't dim our sense of excitement about the potential and the vision. And I suppose that's the final point I've got to make on the future is that partly for that reason, partly because this is about evolution and not revolution, and it, can, it must be about evolution, is that we need to be really, really solid about our facts. And what I mean by that is that digital health, unlike, say, the development of medicines or other technologies in healthcare, has been very amateur, I think, in demonstrating the evidence of its benefits. You know, you can't get licensed as a drug without going through really a very demanding evidential process of demonstrating benefit and, you know, a relatively reduced or limited risk of harm. Um, it, digital health hasn't really been through the same, it hasn't held itself to the same standard. And I think what we need to do is develop the narrative of its benefits is really take with that good evidence that shows actual benefit. And people are beginning, of course, to do this now, but just not to assume that because it worked in airlines or in retail, it's bound to work in healthcare, which has very different cultural contexts and sort of almost assume it's just common sense this has got to work because so far that hasn't always been the case. So, so I think it's really important that as we evolve our technology, we also have one very firm eye on how we're going to relate the narrative of benefits and measure those as scientifically as possible using all the data that we have potentially available. So I think that would be the other thing I'd do. And that's an investment requirement. So, you know, you can't just go build a new widget without investing also in the ability to improve its um, efficacy. Yeah, that's fascinating insights, Tim. I really appreciate your thoughts and your vision on that. But also, it's great to learn a little bit more about your background and also what's to come. So I'm going to put some links to everything about yourself, PKS, and anything else that we've had a chat about within this episode, within the show notes on the podcast, so people can check that out in their own time. Tim, good luck with the new gig. I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you so much. No, thank you, Pete. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch. Make sure you go check out our website for all our resources, including this podcast and the largest directory of technology solutions available to Australian healthcare practitioners today. Until next time, I'm out of here.